Renoites listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. Thank you so much for checking out the show. I'm so excited about this episode. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with City Councilwoman Jenny Breckis. Jenny is in her third term on the City Council, and this year, she is running for mayor. So we had a lot to talk about. We talked about the Neon Mine District, the Jacobs Development. We talked about the CARES Campus. We talked about how to spend federal money that has come into Reno or will be coming into Reno. Talked about how Reno should grow, whether that's outwards or upwards. There's a lot of news around a development in Verdi that was just ordered to be approved, even though the city council denied it. Tons and tons of stuff to talk about, and really grateful that Jenny came on the show. Before we get into the interview, as most of you know, I host Trivia for DJ Trivia at several local venues around town. I would love for you to check it out. We actually have a couple new venues that are just about to start. We're going to be at Hukava downtown, and also at Record Street Brewing. So go to djtrivianevada.com. You can find a venue near you. It's free to play. It's always a ton of fun. I hope we'll see you there soon. Also, let's talk about where we get our local news. It is really important to know what's going on in town, and there's not always a lot of good news sources for local issues, local events, things that really matter to people here in the Reno area. My favorite place to get news is This Is Reno. Thisisreno.com is their website. You can also find them on social media. I get their newsletter every day that has the headlines of the day. They're really covering a lot of things that you're not going to hear about from the TV news or from our local newspaper. So check them out. Thisisreno.com. Really recommend them and am very grateful for the work they're doing to make sure that we know what's going on in the Reno area. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, any ideas for episode topics, or any feedback in general, you can reach out to me anytime. My email address is Connor, that's C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. And now, this week's guest, Councilwoman Jenny Breckis. Jenny Breckis, welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you about all of this stuff that's going on in Reno right now. Thank you, Connor, for inviting me on. Perfect. So let's start by learning a little bit about you. So you've worked for the city for a really long time. You were a planner before you were on the city council. You've you're in, in your third term as a city council person, and your background is in city planning and kind of the urban development, that kind of stuff. That's your education. That's your, your work background. So can you start by talking a little bit about what goes into planning for how a city grows? Reno has all of this rapid growth right now. Tons of people are moving here. And I know you were a big part of the, the new master plan that was adopted not that long ago. So can you just kind of talk about the big picture of how planning goes into managing a city like Reno that's growing and changing so much and how kind of that planning background applies to what you do? Sure. So I, um, like you said, I set out to have a career as a city planner, did not set out to have a career as someone doing politics at the local level, but there's a lot of related, interrelated business that's done as a sitting council member related to city planning, obviously. So it is a good relevant background to have. I um, grew up in a San Francisco Bay Area community of about 3,000. My dad was on the town council there and they sat as the planning commission and he used to take us around to look at sites, you know, on the way to soccer practice or something. So we'd go look at those and that put in my head a little bit of an understanding about the physical nature of a community, the role of, say, a local government in private property development and just kind of stored that memory. And then and after getting a um, humanities undergraduate degree in classics, I started thinking about what to do professionally as a real um, applied 
kind of career, you know, um, trying to give back to the community and more or less stumbled onto city planning. At that point, I was pursuing graduate degrees in Albuquerque at the University of New Mexico, another Mountain West state that um, is really where I've decided to you know, live my adult life is in the Mountain West. I'd also done a, a year or so in uh, South Dakota working for the Park Service. So just love being out on the other side, you know, between the big ranges where the mountains meet the desert. And in 1998, after getting my degree, working for both the city of Albuquerque in planning and economic development, redevelopment, and then a brief stint in Southern New Mexico, working as the planning director in a rural community. My husband, who's also a planner, his degree is from the University of Texas at Austin, just wanted to come back closer to where my family was. And Reno just fit the bill. He's a native of El Paso, mountains, desert. We met in Albuquerque, mountains, desert. So we came here. And around 98, a job opened up in uh, Reno's planning department. I worked for them for about nine, 10 years. Some of that was in a part-time capacity because I had our daughter in 2001, uh, left Reno in 2009. The Reno at that time was starting to lay off staff. They ended up losing about a third of their workforce, was not very well prepared as a city organization to weather the um, Great Recession and the revenue drops from that. Mm -hmm. But it was a fun uh, way to get to know my community, to, to learn a lot about Reno. When it's your adopted community, you gather the knowledge about it differently than your own you know, community that you're born and raised in. And it's a, it's a fun discovery. It was a fun discovery through that process. During the Great Recession, I went down to state government and worked a little bit on a contract basis in the housing division there, uh, working on subsidized affordable housing projects. That was a great learning experience, very relevant to the work now. And then around 2010, 2011, I was just looking at to see how poorly Reno had positioned itself to weather a downturn in revenues in that recession called the Great Recession. In particular, they had gotten into some some crazy, not recommended, um, now regulated better, hopefully, financial instruments, instruments for lending um, and borrowing money. And also, uh, just on a more basic level, the Moana pool that had served this community for about three generations as a swimming pool had allowed to fall into disrepair and and be mothballed. And I saw that the council had spent a lot of money on a lot of things like facilities for downtown, the ballroom, the bowling stadium, the event center, tourism facilities. But those that were most meaningful to the local population, a pool that was a treasure for the community for three generations wasn't something they invested in. And it just one day almost clicked to me is, you know, I love this community. We're invested. We're raising our daughter. I know as much about city planning, city government, as those people who were on the council for all this time and um, have been making these important decisions. And I thought, well, why not like my dad, you know, try and step up and bring that knowledge you know, to the council and pursue it. And my dad's experience on the council was kind of like being on a PTA. I don't think he ever campaigned. It's just like you put your name out there. It's a small town. Coincidentally, my sister has been serving on it now for 12 years also. It's just kind of a community service. And then I also have a degree in addition to getting my master's in planning. I also got a master's in um, 
public administration. And that's where you get into the financial aspects of serving on a local government, either at the staff for the elected level and um, all the other facets of uh, intergovernmental relations, personnel management, contract bargaining. So I brought that expertise in also and lean you know, in the years I've been on council onto both sides of it, both the planning and the how local governments um, operate. You know, I like to say when you look at a city council agenda, about 40 percent, and this is kind of across the board, we're fast growing. Um, so you maybe see a little bit more, but about 40 percent is related to planning, community development and, and so on. The rest is maybe you know, receiving grants, you know, uh, other areas, arts and culture, but the bulk of it is related to planning. And then if you take in the other issues related to, you know, your public infrastructure, which is intertwined with planning, it's pretty much the show. And then the finances all how to finance it. So it is a good background to bring in city planner, city council member. And so in 2012, I just decided to step up. I knew that term limits were starting to come to the city of Reno, but it was dark days. The city had laid off a third of its workforce, had brought on a city manager who came from the state with some budget expertise. He didn't have city management expertise. And it was really just trying to keep the heads above water. There was some federal money that was flowing but the tax revenue had really been, um, you know, suffered decline. And it was a real feat those years between that city manager and the finance director to, um, you know, keep the city going as a going concern. It was tough, dark financial days that a city government never wants to be in. You know, that was the how I came on originally, more out of a financial aspect you know, in the depths of the Great Recession, but, you know, with a great faith that this is a great community with a strong potential. And, you know, boom and bust is in the Nevada, um, you know, psyche. And when you bust, you do bust hard. That's not a good thing. And when you boom, you boom hard. And you really want to have a level, consistent growth pattern. But those are those are not as common as you'd see around, you know, our American cities. What have you found to be the experience of working more on the political side and in the city council compared to the planning? Like, have you been able to have a lot of impact on making these things more sustainable and, and avoiding this big boom bust cycle? Obviously, there's been so much growth in Reno and a lot to manage. If you're talking about how to manage growth, there's a lot of decisions to be made. How much of that falls on the city council and kind of what has your experience been on the city council side of? putting those ideas that you have into place? That's a great question because I came to the council on a real heightened level of policy knowledge and also, um, you know, knowing how local government works because I'd worked for three of them. But the political world is different. And I, I was invited to speak at the 2019, I think it was a National Conference of American Planning Association because there's not a lot of planners who have made this jump over to political life. And I showed a meme of, you know, the planners is like, look, here's an iceberg. Here's what you see of the, you know, the city council members and how they're, 
you know, operating, functioning, what you see at meetings and decision-making, but below that water, there's a whole lot of mass down there and that's your political life and that's the political world. And you need to, to some degree, be aware of it, but also as staff, you can't try and figure out what the political directions are of your body, of the members. You need to be up there above the water, setting forth, you know, recommendations on the expertise that you have of best practices of, you know, your planning goals of founding your master plan of equity, of resiliency, of fiscal prudence. You can't be second guessing the political world, but be aware that it is big and it is, you know, important consideration and help understand it and work through it. So the political life pretty quickly became apparent to me that we need a more level playing field. And so I was very happy with um, my colleagues early on. We adopted a lobbying registration. So if you're going to be paid to try and persuade staff or an elected official at City Hall, you're going to register as a lobbyist and everyone knows who you're working for and who your clients are. That was a good win. I got there ultimately with my colleagues, but I got some help from the charter committee (laughs) that is appointed by the council and by legislators to, you know, look at our charter, which is our constitution, make some recommendations. And one of the recommendations they made was one that I wasn't able to get through the council. And that was that we do a more um, regular reporting on the money we're bringing into our own finance campaigns. Hmm. And so the state of Nevada has outlined a campaign campaign finance reporting framework. But like all things at the state of the Nevada, their you know, municipal government do, that does most of the work, county government is total afterthought. So the reporting system is really on election years. And unlike the legislature that goes and checks into Carson City every other year for you know, 60, 90 days, local government is doing work year round every month, every year. And um, those decisions need some better real-time reporting on, um, you know, what campaign contributions are coming to people and when. So the Reno City Council, once our charter was amended, told us to direct, um, adopt an ordinance resolution about uh, reporting our contributions in off years. And those are filed with our city clerk. And then they're available on the website. So you can know in a more regular quarterly period when any one of us is taking a contribution Hmm. and um, great sunlight. Very proud of that accomplishment. Is there more to do? Probably because as the years have gone by, I've seen a lot of, um, I think special interests have a a hold at city council and uh, we need more sunlight. We need to have a council that works for all, that is uh, taking a broader interest. We're growing community, can't just be the same interest, having a outweighed um, uh, importance or response at City Hall. One of the things that I've done over the years and um, had hoped that others would follow along, uh, including our city manager, because Um, Under our charter, the city manager is the chief executive, really runs the day-to-day operations. An appointed individual has a lot of responsibility, but that is is having my calendar on my website. So people can know who I'm meeting with or not meeting with at any time. And I think that's a good practice. And there's precedent for it at the state level with the, you know, the governor and um, 
other officials have done that. And I just think it's good for people to know who you're meeting with, particularly if people have been asking to meet with you and you're not meeting with them. And we can't meet with everyone. Um, We get a lot of requests. We can't attend every event. But I really like to know when decisions are coming, you know, who's meeting with who. And so that's one step of sunlight that I think could help. But yeah, I mean, in the end of the day, I came on in 2012, brought some policy basis. And some of this was like, yeah, we need to do a new master plan. No brainer. Growth will return again. It did return again. We need to redo our our development codes. No brainer. We need to have a very good capital improvement plan to understand where we're going to make our investments because, you know, infrastructure is costly. We don't have a lot of resources. A lot of the infrastructure's um, decisions are made out at other special agencies like the RTC. Um, But I quickly ran uh, headfirst into that's not always how it works is politics can dictate. And unfortunately, as I've gone forward, I've seen that there's interests that are particularly wanting to see infrastructure investment and decisions to their own advantage. And the other considerations just aren't getting as much um, daylight or um, focus. And when I was staff, I would always write a staff report, even on a narrow development decision. And this is the way this is looked at the policies, but on the other hand, so staff's job is always to look at it 360 for a decider and a decider should always be as well-versed on, you know, one consideration versus another. And usually things aren't even that easy. They're very complex. We're dealing with very complex times, Mm. complex issues, but it's been a challenge, the politics, but also the turnover at city hall. When you've had three city managers serving in 12 years, none of them having prior city management experience. It's it's a challenging environment on top of an organization that's rebuilding from a reduced workforce of a third and fast, fast growth. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, you know, Nevada's, Nevada's a tough one at the local government. We're a low service we're low tax um, state. A lot of that um, is volatile. It uh, doesn't come down to the local level and um, low services. But sometimes the growth that you're seeing, you know, doesn't want the low services, ne- needs, needs high services, particularly as you see the plight of so many who are facing, um, you know, the issues that you see of mental health and addiction um, leading to, you know, tough economic times too in combination with the tough economic times. Yeah. Uh, Well, I know that you are running for mayor this year. So trying to increase your ability to get the things done that you want to do done. And I want to ask you a lot about that. But first, I kind of want to just run through some local issues because there's so much going on in Reno right now, especially around development. There's uh, a lot of issues around homelessness with the CARES campus, a lot of concern about how we're dealing with homelessness in the area, whether we're providing the services we need, just a million things to talk about. So I'd love to kind of just dive into a bunch of current issues. And I'd love to start with the Jacobs development because this has been the biggest news item, I think, and so consequential for how Reno is growing. That's the the big question is, how is Reno going to grow? Is it going to be sustainable? Is it going to bring down housing prices? How are we going to deal with all of these things? And Jacobs has taken up a lot of air in the room about all of these decisions. So for most listeners, I think are pretty familiar with this situation already, but my super quick rundown for people who have not been paying attention, basically 
Jacobs Entertainment is a out-of-state casino company. They own casinos all over the country. They owned the Gold Dust West. And in 2017, they bought the Sands and had this vision or idea for creating the what they're calling the Neon Line District. So basically like a new part of downtown that's supposed to have you know, uh, hotels and zip lines and apartments and businesses and all of these things. They want to kind of shift the focus of downtown over to that stretch between the gold dust and the sands. And to do that, they bought up a lot of old motels that served as last resort housing for a lot of people. As Reno's growing, there's not enough development and housing for people to live in. So those motels have been used as housing for a really long time, but in super, super poor conditions. So a lot of them are torn down nothing has been built by Jacobs in that area. So it's a lot of demolishing of units without creating new units yet. And a lot of questions about what is actually going to go in there. That is the frustration for a lot of people is there's a vision, there's an idea, but where's the plan, right? Where's the, you know, where's the beef? So that is what a lot of people are really concerned about. And that seems to be a conflict ongoing in the city is like, what is actually happening here? What is the city giving away to Jacobs? There's differing perceptions about what the city is doing for Jacobs to make this development happen. A bunch of questions about Jacob. I'll try to like do these rapid fire. Do I have, is that a pretty fair assessment you think of like the, what's going on? Yeah. I mean, I would maybe emphasize a few more points. Not all of those motels were in terrible disrepair. My daughter, maybe mm, 12 years ago, had a dance teacher. She was, she was different. She um, taught castanets, came from a very um, skilled um, practice of, um, you know, dancing for decades and decades and interesting around the country and Canada. And she gave me a really good insight to those motels. And I drive her back and forth from um, teaching lessons and not all of them were created equal. Some of them were, were little communities. So I, I think that that's one point I'd like to make. And he's also bought items other than um, motels, but, you know, just, you know, if you want to ask me is when I came on the council in 2012, I said, we need to do a master plan. We need to work on downtown. Downtown had really gotten away from the city, taken steps backwards. Um, the, example we used was the graffiti task force. They all got laid off. So no one was cleaning up a graffiti and it was everywhere. You know, we, I said, let's do a plan for downtown and the council all agreed. We'll do one. And we did one. And when they looked at downtown, defined the downtown area, they looked at the one area where, you know, Jacob bought of his lot of his land and said, you know, this area has potential. It has good um, grid network you know, bones, you call it in city planning, but it's of an of undefined characteristic. You should do another plan for it. We'll call it the Northwest Quadrant for now, but it needs a planning effort. So I, you know, it's in Ward 1. I came out of the council, out of that planning effort when it was adopted. And in the next budget got that planning effort. It was going to be collaborative. It was going to be, you know, just how you do a little plan involve everyone. Got it through budget. Well, Jacobs had just come to town, got wind of it, and put a stop on that. And I was told by city staff, Jacobs does not want to lose control of this area. And then the story was written. And the story has been written as the council's priority to implement the downtown plan, implement a lot of our master plan work because, 
like you said, um, the air is taken out of the room with Jacobs. And yes, I mean, there's probably five or six other things I would have loved to have seen planning staff working on in this area, just of an urban nature that I think could return more equitable, beneficial policies and outcomes to the community. But the council wanted to make this deal and let Jacobs be in charge or not in charge, but negotiate with Jacobs a deal. It's called a development agreement. You know, so it's very transactional. Mm-hmm. The people who were living there had lived there. They weren't involved in any discussions. Jacobs exercised his property rights. About 600 residential units have evaporated. And that's 600 people who were residents of the Northwest Quadrant. You know, it's easier to plan for an area when you've displaced an area and you have one player. And that's how they've worked with a lot mm-hmm. of influence at City Hall. If you've been watching the Jacobs uh play through. He has hired uh, a lobbyist. That lobbyist has a very close relationship with the mayor. She reads about that relationship at every council meeting. She's probably read it 50 or 60 times because they've come through not only for the development agreement, but of a lot of abandonments and other approvals that they need at the council. I don't have an answer on it. I just Mm kind of guess 50 or 60. Maybe it's 30 or 40. I don't, I don't know, but um, he's been able to have a lot of influence and a great deal. And the great deal just um, accumulated with him being able to get some rights that the rest of the development community doesn't have. And you only get through this one-on deal. And I think that good policy can help everyone. And there are policies that we could have applied in the downtown area that could have delivered more to other people who want to exercise their private property rights by building Mm -hmm. and developing. And, and I just want to emphasize to you what a unique scenario you have with this Jacobs. It's not reflective of a lot of development approaches. Our development community is very tight knit and they won't speak out of turn about one another. But in quiet conversations, people scratch their heads and say, I've never seen anything like this. He doesn't operate like we operate. And Jacob's Entertainment is primarily, as I understand it, related to a man named Jeff Jacobs. He is an heir of a, of a great real estate fortune that came out of Cleveland. His interests in different parts of the country. I don't think he has that many casino interests, maybe one or two others. Hmm. He's not like a Caesars Entertainment. But for whatever reason, he bought that gold dust West and early on, I was excited to meet him. He helped install a, a, a traffic improvement on um, second street where we were having pedestrians hit like three deaths in, right before I came on and two when I was on. And, um, and then he bought the sands and he bought some of the infill projects. But as I started to watch, I got very nervous that one, the council had taken a pass on planning collaboratively for everyone in the area and two, these demolitions were getting very uh, concerning. Now, it's his private property right to demolish something. And that's that's what he has. But he kept coming through and at wanting asks, ask, 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 ask for a street here, ask for an alley here and accumulating in this development agreement. And one of the worst things of the development agreement is if you have a property and you vacate it you get a hold on the sewer that was served there. You've already paid into the sewer funds, you get a hold. But that hold on those credits for the sewer that was there for the prior use, they expire after say 
five years. So there's incentive to build, mm -hmm. you know, because your clock is ticking. And I have met other developers who have raced the clock to build something after demolition. And not Jacobs. He went down to the council and got to have that sewer credit extended, I think 20 years. So the council, by this agreement, created and accommodated him with the incentive to hold that land longer than it would be. No hurry, no mm. worry. And that, uh, in my mind, is very ill thinking on behalf of the council in terms of public policy, because we all want something built. And the handshake, you know, one-off, you know, transactional thinking is we give him what he needs, what he asks for, this alley here, this, that, and he will deliver back to us and build. But he hasn't. <laughs> and I, I don't believe he will either. I guess that's the real question is there's this kind of tension between do we want a master planned neighborhood that is just a vision that's 20 years down the line, or do we want to like protect the housing units that we have now and, and build what we can now and end up with something that's maybe a little less structured. So just coming from kind of a planning background, how do you, I guess, how do you incentivize things to happen now without losing the continuity or the consistency in a, like a bigger plan? Well, I think what it is, is if you're going to sink all your, you know, hopes and wishes on one person and never underestimate the idiosyncratic nature of any urban property owner. Okay. Because this man sitting with, you know, I've heard estimates, you know, done my own research, you know, maybe $350 million of personal wealth, half a billion, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, land in Reno is just another asset, right? And so that can sit a long time. That can mm -hmm. sit for heirs. That can sit for wherever. You got that much money. You got to put it somewhere. Maybe he just decided to put it in Reno and just let it let it roll. It'll appreciate. You mm -hmm. know, they ain't building any more land is the saying. So, but that's not what he said. But that could always be the, the outcome, right? right? You know, I don't know if you've been up Keystone Avenue at the interstate where they're building the new, um, some fast food uh, developments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I live right that, down the street from there. So that's like, that is my neighborhood. Okay. That property was bought by out of town investors 2007 or so. They bought an improved old dated shopping center. They leveled it and they lost the property. Did they sell it at a more than they bought it for when they, you know, put in all the holding costs and demolition? I don't know. Um, they bought high before the great recession. So I very much can point to a parallel of someone who bought high. And I think the analysis is that Jacobs did buy high because he paid for the improvements. Some of those were, you know, going concerns, businesses that were going concerns. There's a dry cleaners, a tire shop, a wedding chapel, several motels. So his purchase price included those improvements. Then he demolishes, he's got costs. So then he starts to maybe pencil a deal, but he has said, and I sat with him before, you know, I have not had conversations with him a while. And he said, he's not building anything. He's selling that. So he's hmm. got to get his cost of purchase, his cost, you know, which is, could be high and some profit before he sells it to a developer who's going to build and try and pencil a real estate deal. 
you know, that's a whole lot of what ifs. And mm. what I've asked if the council wanted to do a development agreement is put some requirements on the back end of him to build if he's going to get some privileges from the council that aren't available to the rest of the world, like those extended sewer credits I talked about, like alleys, those mm -hmm. sort of things. So it's not like, you know, save those moat, like there's an opportunity to save those motels. That is a private property interest. Now, could we have done other things? And, um, you know, uh, we'll talk about that when we talk about the CARES campus, but, but, um, that's how this, this scenario has has gone forward. And, um, you know, we will see, but we also have to be prepared for having a landowner who has bought a large swath of your downtown, leveled it and won't build a thing for a long time. And that's just like the Keystone Avenue commons over there a decade. That's a tough one to stomach. Mm -hmm. And if you have been at have been any part of public um, policy, you know, this development agreement that facilitates that you're doing your community a disservice. And there's a lot of urban history when you get redevelopment agencies in doing things like urban removal and so on in 60s and 70s. And um, and it's it's really fallen out of favor, but it seems to be here in Reno in 2022 in terms of policy. And that's that's disturbing to me. So anyway, uh, we will see where this goes forward. But, you know, I uh, I want to be on the offense. The offense is is not calling out, uh, you know, you know, this Jacobs agreement. No, bad for this, this, this reason. I want to be on the offense. The offense is one in that North Quadrant. People are building. And they're building without all the privileges and benefits that Jacob's got. And you can see one next to the cathedral there. You can see one off of Keystone Avenue around 2nd Street. You can see one that went on on 1st Street. Um, it's occupied now. There's about four or five developments in that area, residential, going on right now. And one mm -hmm. more that I know on the books. So those folks are going. Now, how could those folks have benefited from some council policy? The council policy they could have benefited from is the fees that RTC charges for building new roads. Those fees are based upon needing a lot more road capacity. Well, in your downtown, you're not really looking for more roadway capacity. You're looking for safety improvements. And in some ways, you're shrinking down roads and not having big thoroughfares go into your downtown. I've been on the council saying we need to look at those RTC fees. And if you knock the RTC fees off of those seven, $8,000, you know, maybe more people could qualify to get into those apartments or buy those condos that are getting constructed in that area. It wouldn't just be a deal assigned to Jacobs, which is the way the council's gone. It would have been good policy, a fee incentive that's tied to, you know, a question of why you're even charging fees in those areas. I know it's a longer discussion about how we finance roads and infrastructure in these areas, but this was at our council meeting last time. And I brought up the point, look, you know, these are fees related to road capacity, building new roads. But why do we have a zoning code that doesn't even require parking spaces in these areas? Tell me this. You've got a very clear conflict that you're charging fees for all these new units to need all this new road capacity, but you're not even requiring these developments to have spaces to accommodate cars, which is the best practice. You know, in theory, people will have fewer cars in a downtown area if you've got other ingredients going right. Yeah. So the vision is not these one on deals with what could be a very idiosyncratic 
developer who could just be doing a wealth management strategy of buying land in Reno, but good policy. And all of that is outlined um, to the you know, best modern contemporary approaches you could take in our downtown plan, in our Reno master plan, but the air has been taken out of out of the room to implement the Jacobs agreement. And there's other ways we could have done, could have done, could have gone, will go when I'm mayor. Hmm. Well, I think that, is there a challenge about the ability of the city council to do certain things? One of the things that Anjanette Damon from ProPublica has written a lot about the Jacobs development and the headline of her big article was that uh, he tore down motels during an affordable housing crisis and city leaders did nothing. And part of that might be because the city, but you said it's, you know, private property there. You can't tell someone what they can and can't do with their property. What do you think needs to change in that regard as far as the city's ability to do stuff? Not necessarily the will to make these decisions, but the actual, uh, the powers. What would the difference be with you as mayor versus as, as a city council person to kind of steer those decisions and those powers? Well, if I had been mayor we would have had a Northwest area plan. Jacobs would have been a player in that, but so would have a lot of other people. We would have decided what sort of infrastructure and street improvements we're putting there as it is now out of the development agreement. He gets to put whatever street infrastructure he you know, decides is an appropriate design and some big signs that brand the area for him. No, we would have had the Northwest area plan. You would not have seen me at groundbreaking sitting there cheerleading on bulldozers you know, by Jacobs's side as he displaces people, you would not have seen that. And so the mayor, you know, carries a lot of um, influence, has uh, ceremonial duties, but also a lot of, you know, leadership defers to that person. You would not have seen a a cheerleader there when someone's tearing down and displacing poor people, not not going to happen. So that tone would have changed. And then like that sewer credit fee, you know, Yes, he could tear down a 60-unit motel, but he better build in five years. Those sewer credits, which are a huge chunk of change, are going to have to be repaid again. You don't get get a little bonus of sitting that land for 15 years. It's absolutely in conflict with everything the council says they want, which is him to rebuild. And what he says, he rebuilds. If he wants to rebuild so much and he's going to reconfigure this whole community, why does he need these sewer fees to sit out for longer than allowed by ordinance for his own financial gain? You would not have seen deals like that. I will respect all day long his property rights, but as a matter of public policy, he's not getting one-off deals that aren't good for the rest of the community and work against, you know, your goals. That would not have happened. So that's how that would change. Now, another thing, and I know you wanted to mention the CARES campus and our, our time's limited here. I did not support the CARES campus when it was finally, you know, viewed out into the world what it was. There was a lot of behind the scenes working and then it was put off to this regional body and it became this massive compound without any programming considerations. And when it finally came to a vote, a regional vote, I said no. And I knew it was going to be a problem. And three months after it opens up, you know, the county commissions this report from this expert who says, you know, you really got a problem on your hands. And so, you know, it was not a best practice, best approach. Two things about the CARES campus is it was made possible to build that massive compound, which we need something to help transition people off the street only by the rescue money that came in 
from the federal government in response to COVID. Okay, so that's what facilitated it. Thanks, spring of 20. But what were other places doing around the around the country? They were taking those folks and they were buying motels. California had a project called uh, Room Key or Hotel Motel Room Key. And I time and time again said, let's get out in the market and see if we can buy some of these motels, even some hotels rent long-term lease because tourism dropped. Let's go that approach. Let's go that approach. And didn't get any traction. Everyone was dead set on building this massive warehouse compound, you know, at the farthest east boundaries of Reno, no man's land. And, um, but, you know, admittedly, it was hard to do what other communities were doing around the country, which was buying motels when you had a guy in town paying top dollar for them and demolishing them. You know, you're out in hmm. some market competition. But I still maintain that the city and the local governments could have come together and bought a few which could now be under retrofit and be, you know, this this first step up toward housing for some folks who are otherwise on the, on the street. So when you ask, well, what could a city do? A city with those funds that came forward at that time for COVID relief could have been buying some motels and rescuing them. And as a matter of fact, right after the council approved the uh, CARES campus, a motel owner across the street reached out to me and said, he's been trying to sell that to the city and wants to. And so, um, you know, those were never given consideration. And and here's, here's something you ask about being mayor is there's still a lot of federal money coming down and the council has prioritized that for housing. It's coming down and it's going to be available over the next four years. I don't want it misspent. I don't want it misspent on worst practices, you know, uh, designed on the fly CARES campus shelters. I want it mm. to be spent in a best approach. And there's some models out there of, of bringing subsidized housing to, you know, be able to expand that um, housing stock and best practice to have the market be positioned to do what they need to do, which is to build housing that is the most affordable to those in need. And I'm very afraid in the next four years, we've got a once in two, three generation of funds coming down from the federal government to improve lives. And I'm afraid that it's going to be, you know, deal made with people like Jacobs and, and go into, you know, people's pockets and not go towards best practice outcomes. And that is part of my mayoral run is to say, hey, we've got an opportunity. You want to look at the track record of dealing with housing? Look at the CARES campus. A, a failure or a, you know, a, a not a good approach by your own experts three months after you open. You want to look at other housing approaches? Cheerleading some out-of-town multimillionaire when he comes in and tears down 600 residential units. Let's give someone a chance to be mayor, to set the tone, to learn from other examples, who's you know been thinking about these issues deeply for, for decades now. Yeah, I think like the affordability of housing is forefront for a lot of people because housing in Reno is just getting more and more and more and more expensive. And it doesn't feel like there is any way to fix that without building more units and anything that is being built is these kind of like luxury units. And as we talked about with Jacobs also, when you're spending that much money on the land, that much money on these properties, and then trying to pencil a deal, the argument that is always going to be made is the only way that we can make money on these things is with these, you know, above market 
units and there's no uh, incentive to do the affordable units. I went to the presentation at the library that Anjanette Damon hosted, and that seemed to be uh, kind of the the common theme among the developers is that doing affordable is it's harder. Uh, there are developers that are doing more affordable projects, but there are hurdles to that. There, are, It is more burdensome to make affordable housing than it is to make housing that is outside the reach of, you know, typical Marinoites. How do you incentivize private developers to make affordable housing? Can you just talk a little bit about how to do that, how to make developers or how to allow developers, I guess, to create affordable housing in Reno. Yeah. Like what, is, what are the stumbling blocks for them and how do we, how do we remove that? How do we fix that? Obviously the city you mentioned investing money themselves and buying properties is one thing, but the number of units required feels much bigger than what the city can do by, you know, buying a couple motels. It's like, that is, it's helpful. Um, but is it realistic to expect the city to solve the issue of affordable housing by building enough units themselves? No. So how do we, incentivize or create kind of the market conditions for affordable housing in Reno? Because that seems like the impossible task. Yeah. And you have to really frame the problem properly to to jump off, leap off. And number one, in my view, and this is my view, is the housing is also related to incomes. Incomes have been stagnant for a lot of years for a lot of people. And that's, you know, big macroeconomic trends across across the country, but you need to acknowledge them. You need to recognize the fragility of individual household incomes. You know, that's why this last budget at the city of Reno, I was not going to support the budget if we did not raise to $15 an hour, our lifeguards and those who check in the kids at the uh, community center for childcare, you know, so, so we've got to realize that incomes are not where they need to be. You know, we'll see what's going on right now. We're in very turbulent times, but that's another side of the ingredient. Now, one little city is not going to you know, fix that, but we do know that that is a challenge. Second is, you know, you really need a variety of housing types to be built. And you alluded to that. So um, what do you do is you really have to understand what's getting built, what's been approved. And the market's going to control. The market's going to dictate for any single developer what they do. You know, you may have someone idiosyncratic who can sit on land for decades, but usually, you know, they're not going to, you know, sign on to a piece of land if they don't know, you know, in 18 months or whatever, they can deliver a profit. The mm -hmm. time they got to move. So one thing that came out of our master plan is that we really have to understand what's getting approved and what's getting built and what's next to come on. Because while it's all a market-driven decision, it's also a decision of the city and how we invest our police and fire service response, you know, in the core mm -hmm. where we got them or way out somewhere else. What sort of investments we're going to need in terms of the infrastructure? And I'll tell you right now is there's not a lot we can do on this, but if we're going to be making investments in the sewer system way out in the North Valleys and beyond, that's going to be paid by sewer rates. And those hit your household budget, just like your rent every month. Even if you're a renter, they're built in or you're a homeowner, you're paying it separately yourself. So we need to make sure that we're providing the infrastructure in the most equitable way that is delivering products we need, not a surplus, not a deficit, 
but that is also what the public needs, not just ones that someone thinks that they can sell off to some, you know, publicly traded home builder to, you know, sell out. And so that analysis, which was strongly called for in our master plan, and the first thing that I asked to have implemented has dropped off completely. And so we're kind of driving blind in terms of what the council, what the city is approving, what they're committing public investment to, and what it's delivering. And until we do that, we can't start to take the next steps. The master plan said the most affordable housing is going to be built in your core, in areas like where Jacobs is. So, you know, a lot of old retail you know, land that's not delivering where everyone's buying online or or so on. That is a, a large amount of land space that needs to get reconfigured into housing. Is it going to be single family detached on 7,000 square foot lots? Probably not. You know, that's the typology and typologies will, will be changing. That's why I am kind of happy. I walked around the red development, the old Plum Lane, and that's a lot of units coming on. There's going to be synergy over there and that's good product to come on. And it does take a while. It does take a lead time, but we need to be monitoring the land supply. And as you start to infill more, your public investment decisions become very important. Uh, you get more people in an area, like around the Plum Lane area. Are you going to add more parks? Are you going to rebuild your roads so that you have more crosswalks, better sidewalks, better connectivity? You know, are you or are your investment decisions being driven by moving out beyond the North Valleys into Cold Springs? you know, which one's delivering the housing product that you need. So that those are some of the issues that have been completely ignored and not calculated and deliberated in this rollout of our master plan in this in this boom. It's been very free for all. Whatever gets built gets approved. And someone told me recently when everything gets approved, nothing gets built. And you'll hear a lot of developers say, well, we have the approvals. We just can't build. And that's because you were able to get the approvals through City Hall, but City Hall isn't doing its job figuring out where they can provide the services and where they can provide the infrastructure. And that's been the big miss by the city this last several years. But I want to flip over to another point, and this is framing the decision. When you frame the decision, the discussion, I mean, you need to understand when you're talking about affordable housing, are you talking about that which has a a subsidy because it's a public investment of subsidy in a housing supply, or are you talking about that which the market brings? The subsidized housing really are, the subsidy comes down from the federal government mostly, and in most years can only get 50 or 60 units built a year. And I worked in that, you know, I told you I worked on that. Now, in times when the federal government wants to invest in America's life, like they did during the Great Recession, where they're doing now, you know, you can get a lot of units on in four or five years. I would say that there's probably capacity to bring on mm, maybe a thousand units in a subsidy. And this is a long-term subsidy over the next four or five years from what the federal government has agreed to commit. That's a big windfall. And that subsidy um, and how that plays out is going to be very complex. It's going to be a big task, but it's exciting. That in 
connection with the other subsidy units that we also have. Some are owned by the Reno Housing Authority, some are privately held, but they were built with, you know, an investment of subsidy in there. So the developers who own that privately are required to keep those at an affordable level for a while. But you need to understand what you're getting. The bulk of housing and housing demand is going to come from the private market. So how do you get the private market to get there? If they can build all day long, you know, homes up in the hills, which are, you know, bring challenges to wildfire and you got to pump water Mm -hmm. up or sewer, that's great. But is that really where the public needs to be putting its investment choices? Maybe not. Maybe we need to come down and do a little bit more. And that's what all of that would have been made known in that Northwest plan. We would have been looking at the sewer lines, the water lines down there and and right size that to what the private sector could have would have built there. You know, there is a lot to be done to to get us to a point of affordability and then, you know, playing with fees, you know, that are differential, maybe like the those road ones. If you're going to live way out in Cold Springs, yeah, maybe you are going to tack on a big road capacity um, charge. But if you're going to live downtown, maybe not so much. And that does impact how the housing product will be built and delivered ultimately at the end of the day. And in lieu of that, you know, are you going to make decisions to build four lane roads out there? Or are you going to modernize and retrofit your urban arterials? Those are the issues for government to make, to help to work in partnership with those who build the housing. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's always this conflict between kind of urban development and sprawl, like for people who are not super well-versed in all of the ins and outs of how these things get decided by the city and, and the difference between what the city can influence and what kind of the market influences. There's this conflict between sprawl. I don't want Reno to continue to be like forever sprawling city. I lived in Las Vegas for nine years, which I just see as like a, like a nightmare of uh, suburban sprawl and, that is very unappealing to me here in Reno, but recently, so there was this development in Verdi that I guess the city council voted against because there was risk of fire. There's not fire station there. There's more infrastructure challenges. And then that was reversed by a judge. So it's kind of whether we like it or not, I guess there is this push that supports some of the more sprawling infrastructure, which is potentially frustrating. Can you talk a little bit about that development and that tension between Uh, the demand for more sprawl and more of these kind of far-flung neighborhoods versus the demand, which I have for more kind of dense urban development, public transportation, kind of a more, uh, a more urban Reno, uh, because we do have the capacity for that. I have been saying for years and years that as, as we continue to develop around downtown, like the university, I know this is another big issue of yours too, is like moving some of the university into downtown, kind of integrating those two communities we have the potential for a vibrant urban Reno. I used to live in Portland, Portland State University is like in the middle of downtown Portland and it works and it's exciting. And it's something that I see as a real opportunity for Reno, but there is this kind of conflict and this tension between like the urban versus the, the suburban. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what you would like to see for Reno in terms of the, the urban development and, and how to steer or how to kind of manage the, the conflict between those two ideas about how Reno should grow out or up kind of. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is where I was talking about is really understanding your land supply 
and the demand and where you have deficiencies in infrastructure and service abilities and where you're, when you're ready to serve to outlying areas. You know, sprawl is a derogatory term, but it is fair to say that we are, you know, um, a sprawling region. Uh, we have some limitations just because we grow up to boundaries like California, right? But we have uh, designed and, you know, suburban, auto-centric communities. But that pretty much marries up to what many Americans, most Americans' preferences are, is that their ability to pay for those and buy those, those are a little bit of challenge too. But, you know, you really need to be very methodical about when you're opening up new areas for land and where and what it's delivering to you, particularly as you start to go up into hillsides in these changing conditions of wildland fire. Very, very scary. So I like to say I represent Colin Ranch. Colin Ranch was a ranch and it goes down to the valley floor, goes all the way up into elevations, but it was a 40 year build out. And the last two subdivisions have been built in you know the last several years since I've been a council member. If you look at Damani Ranch down there, that was a planned community. More or less the same build out. There's been peripheral developments around there too, uh, Caramella Ranch and so on, but more or less methodical build out. We lost sight of that. And I have a history back to the early planning days, going back to 70s, because when I came here in 98, I was talking to a lot of the folks who worked during the 70s and the 80s when a lot of that groundwork was done. And it was much more methodical. It was much more deliberative. It was much more in partnership of what the public sector was going to do and infrastructures and so on. Did, were there challenges? Yeah. The city-county boundary issues have always been problematic in this region. But it seemed like at a point during the Great Recession um, leading up to that and then certainly accelerated here is a lot of people are making plays for land development on land that isn't as good, is farther out, it's more speculative, and they've been able to get the approvals, uh, which is unfortunate because a lot of those approvals just sit on the shelves because they can't get lift off. They can't get lift off because the infrastructure isn't there. And one of those such approvals is really the whole landscape of Verdi. I write a Substack newsletter and I refer everyone to go to Substack.com. You can subscribe, you'll get an email. And I wrote, I think eight last year. Um, I haven't written one this year, but I did a whole one retracing the Verdi story, which was more or less a bunch of landowners who got a judge many years ago to give them a lot of development rights to be a growth area. And I think it is a growth area, but it needed to be more coordinated with the delivery of the infrastructure. But people have been coming in and getting approvals left and right from the council during this great recession. Some have been built and some have not. I was very excited to be able to be over at Tumwa and help get the water system in place over there because I saw what was going on and I just found it untenable to get new Reno residents onto a private water system. Tumwa is the standard in our region, but they were ready to go on this rinky-dink private water utility. No, not okay. Better planning should have occurred around 2014, 2015 when we saw glimmers of development out in Bird Eye. And I brought that up. I said, look, 
We need to go back and do the Verdi area plan. Take the gov, the judge's um, declaration and work for what this community is going to be. And that was blown off. It was blown off by the city council. It was blown off by a former city manager. So the developers have come in one by one, getting this approval. And it's very helter-skelter out there. And it's dangerous. Verdi does not have a modern overpass to accommodate all the development that is there now and approved on both sides of the freeway. The public needs to make that investment decision. And that investment decision of rebuilding that Verdi overpass will stand in competition to a need here in Ward 1, the Keystone Avenue Bridge. But we've got to get all those lined up and make those decisions very strategically about the growth that's coming. And that is not going on at Reno City Hall. And that's why things seem so helter-skelter. But one of those areas, one of those property owners that got an approval back when with this judge um, came in a while ago, the council had some difficulties in making decisions at the tentative map stage. And that's a very downstream decision. Someone's basically ready to start building, but it wasn't there. But you really want to be able to make those decisions upstream. And that's why in 2014, I wanted to line out all the development decisions that needed to be made for the Verdi area to make a wonderful community. There, It's a great community out there. People have been there for decades, their whole lives. There's a lot to be done to make that little old town a very you know, little sub sub area node of West Reno. And we have taken a pass on that. And instead we've had people come in and ask to build a warehouse here, warehouse there, no connectivity, a big miss. It's not too late though. We can go back into Verdi. We can plan for that sub area. We can get the infrastructure and we can bring on the right housing at the right time, you know, with our ability to serve. And we also have challenges about fire stations out there also. But everyone, you know, the development community, a lot of that, those people who want to do projects, a lot on the council, just want to do, fight it out at the planning commission, fighting out at the city council. When you don't have a plan and you, and I'm talking about area plans where it's North Valleys or out in Birdeye particular, nothing's going to get built and it's going to be very chaotic and you're not building a community that everyone is going to be able to prosper. And I call that strikingly in contrast to how we used to do things, Colin Ranch, Damani Ranch. Um, we need to get back to that sort of thinking here in Reno. And as mayor, you know, we're going to do that. We're going to get there. We're going to be planning infrastructure, public services, quality of life amenities in tandem with the development build out. I kind of want to pivot a little bit to the public interaction piece. I'm from Reno originally, but I lived away for most of my adult life and then moved back a few years ago. So my experience of kind of knowing what's going on with the city, paying attention to both the local politics, local development, all those kind of things, that's relatively new for me in the last few years. And I'm curious for you, having been on the city council and being part of all of this that has been happening in, you know, your 10 plus years on city council. Have you seen people paying more attention to what's going on? Do you think that the access for people uh, for information about what's going on is getting better or worse? Kind of what, what trend have you seen around the interaction between the public and the city? Because I think my assumption is a lot of people are not paying nearly as much attention as we assume that they might. You know, like I think there are people that are very invested in the 
the nuts and bolts and kind of the, the, the wonky in the weeds of how everything works. And a lot of people are just living their lives and they're mad when they hear about something that they don't like or that they think is a bad idea. They don't know all the nuts and bolts and they might not even care that much. Have you seen more interest? Have you seen more access? Have you seen more people tuning out because it all just seems overwhelming? What's been the general trend you think about public interaction with the city and input and information around all of these changes that are going on? Well, that's a really great question. I'm sure you have a a great perspective having been here, you know, taking a break, coming back with fresh eyes. That's always a nice perspective. It's often a default. We need more public input. We need more public input. We need more public input. Where's the public? You know, people have busy lives. They're going to come in, come out, form opinions, however they do. And at the end of the day, you just hope that, you know, they have faith that those they, you know, send to city hall that they vote for are going to look out for their broad interests. You know, that's really, if that's the limit of their participation, great. If they see something in their neighborhood go not going on, right. And they know there's a way to call to complain, whether it's to the council member, or, you know, our auto um, mated response um, protocols, you know, great. If they want to, you know, sit through umpteen public input meetings on this issue, they can do that too. I think that a city suffers, and this is a big theme for me, when you don't have a well-functioning, well-defined uh, media outlets. And since I've been on council, obviously we've had an explosion in, you know, I guess you would call it um, dispersion of information media, some of it good because there's outlets like this where you can if you're inclined, listen to a council member talk for an hour. So thank you to you, citizen, you know, <laughs> media person. But, you know, a lot of the channels are broken, particularly your daily um, newspaper, which, uh, you know, I read my hometown newspaper in the Bay Area, smaller community, a lot more local issues covered there than what we're getting out of the RGJ. So I think there has been a very big hole. Um, and I taught I knew an old time reporter and she there were three of you know, one of us at Reno, you know, police department beat, you know, the police had a beat, the sheriff had a beat. I mean, they had a lot of beats, um, different times, different era, you know, so I work sometimes on just having information out there. I mean, do I wish everyone knew and shared concern with me about the sewer rate auto escalation, the RTC gas tax auto escalation and what's being delivered to people on that. Yeah, I wish it'd be make my job a lot easier. If people had that base level, but they're not. But but so there's that. That's one issue about interaction. The other one is I am kind of done with the public information apparatus of local governments spinning stories, you know, look at us, look at this, cheery, cheery this, and not really getting to outlining uh, issues, giving access to materials. It's just, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, trying to be cute and snarky. You know, I think that Whenever I see a public information officer, you know, grow, quadruple, we've got one over here, we've got one over there. I really wonder, could there be other use sources of public dollars to help communicate information and allow people and not to be so one way directional? Because it seems sometimes like the public information office offices, not just Reno, but other places become PR and not so much information and what are your questions? And I think there's always room to break against that 
trend. And some agencies do it well, some don't. I mean, I was over, stuck on the overside of the hill for a lot of the early part of the year, relying upon Caltrans District 3 and how factual and informational they are versus, you know, look at us here, we're doing these great things. And so um, I think that's important to understand an organization's, uh, you know, it's not really fun and it's not a job to sell any elected or politician. It's really a job to get factual information out in real time to as many channels as you can. So having said that, another third issue about involvement, I think is really more of your heart is, um, you know, by the time someone gets one of those cards in the mail for a planning commission or a city council or administrative review, a lot of the table's been laid and that laying the table of the upstream decisions, forming policies, setting out agendas, work programs, that's where the public really needs to be brought in. And there was a time at city hall government where they really thought strenuously about how to engage people. And that's been broken down through this churn of city managers, unfortunately. The neighborhood advisory boards are somehow set up as, you know, we're going to have this public agency come talk about this initiative. Well, that could have been a centralized open meeting on that topic, you know, it didn't need to be repeated five times throughout the neighborhood, throughout the city at these neighborhood advisory boards. The neighborhood advisory board should be very focused on neighborhood issues. What infrastructure are we going to do to solve ditch flooding in Ward 1, for example, those sort of things. And they should be giving input. And so I think we have some work to do there. I also believe that, and I'll go back to my history at the city, is um, there was a time where the city had a really good um, protocols for engaging the public. When do you have a town hall meeting, which is more of a drop-in sort of thing? When do you have focus group meetings? When do you appoint a blue ribbon committee? <laughs> you know, different ways. Um, and it was more centralized. Now it seems like people say, oh, well, we're doing this. We need some input meetings. So we'll have five around the city. But you really need to, um, when you go out and engage the public, you, one, need to have open-ended questions. And at the back of your mind, say, how are these people, if I'm going to ask the public for input, how is whatever they tell me going to influence what we're going to do? Right. Or is it just that it's just getting what we're going to do out there to people so they're informed? You know, you really need to take a step back. And I don't see under our current city hall arrangements that we have someone who or an office that can be a resource to the different departments, whether it's police, whether it's, you know, community development, looking at it from that area of expertise. And the city did you know, maybe in the early 2000s, some really good training with some very forefront um, people who worked all around the country on that. And it left quite a mark on me about how to do public involvement and public input. I'd really like to see the city take that concept, centralize it, have it a resource to different departments and be more um, strategic about how they seek input and also marry that up to the boards and commissions. I think the boards and commissions have a need to be a little more, um, you know, they're not just audiences. If you're on a board of commission, mm -hmm. you're not going to a play, <laughs> you know, okay. <laughs> so there's work, there's work to be done. 
And it's going to be central for me because I really do believe if you aspire to a lot of the values in our master plan of equitable outcomes, you need to really be very sincere and not check off the box and nuanced about how you you know, have conversations with the public on so many issues that you're impacting their lives about. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about neighborhood advisory boards a little bit, and that's something that I wanted to ask you about because that has come up just in the last few days about the Ward 1 Neighborhood Advisory Board. Jacob said that you took them off the agenda, and then some city council people have criticized you for that, saying that, you know, there's this is public input and people should be able to participate in their NAB about the Jacobs development. Um, But at the same time, most of the times that I've heard people talking about these presentations by Jacobs, it goes back to what you said about it feeling more like PR than an actual discussion, like the input of the people that are participating in these things. Is it actually making any changes to what's going to happen? So I'm wondering, why did you, what went into that decision to not have Jacobs on the NAB at that meeting? And what's your response been to kind of the the pushback and the criticism for it. Can you just kind of like give us your perspective on that whole situation that's kind of come up? In sure. You know, I think it was to some degree, it's masquerading um, the politics of 2022 on the body. I mean, it's no, um, it's no, you know, secret that I am challenging Mayor Sheevy and she has, you know, to varying degrees, you know, support among different members and allies. allies. So I think it's rather masquerading that. So let's go back. The council, you know, way back when I asked to do a Northwest plan, Jacob said no, had the, you know, the council members, you know, said no, we, we, we earmarked that budget, don't want to do a collaborative plan for the area. But Jacobs wants a development agreement. Jacobs wants this, Jacobs wants that, Jacobs wants this. At the NABs, when a development application comes in, it's heard by the NABs. So Jacobs has been there many times asking for his abandonments and, and so on. Now, the development agreement that was going to the city council as a whole, I kept the council gave this gave the the direction to the city manager, go work on this development agreement. And I kept saying, who's negotiating on that? And are we having public input meetings on that? No, nope, no, nope, just going to be in front of you. You know, we had a meeting. It's being negotiated, negotiating closed doors. It's a contract. It is a contract. It's a it's an interesting thing. It's a contract between two parties. And it's also an ordinance. So you're putting a contract into your laws. And it came before the council in October. And a lot of people said, you know, let's have some public meetings. Let's do something. And nope, the council adopted it. And I stood alone and said, nope, nope, not going to. I didn't didn't want to go into it. And I don't want to adopt it. I think it's transactional. It's giving rights to someone without having to deliver something back. And let's build policy across the board policy for all development interests to occur. But the council did. And the council is always right. The council is always right. When they when they pass an ordinance and enter into an agreement, they're always right. But after that, I guess there was going to be a public meeting on the neon line. And I guess the city was sponsoring it. I didn't even know that. I asked the city manager the week before that meeting. I said, wait, the city's hosting that meeting? Who's talking at that meeting? Am I talking at that meeting? Who's who's presenting? And he he lined out to me. I said, okay. And then he's and then the next day I hear it went on Zoom. Fine. I listened to it. And uh, you know, Garrett Gordon, the um representative for Jacobs, 
you know, he, he brought up these issues several times that I, I did not let him come on the agenda. Well, that was to come in in December to make a presentation after he'd already had of his development agreement approved. You know, he also was coming in, you know, on other projects, the abandonments, and he did have a, a subdivision map in to build some units, but he pulled that. So he's, he was on those agendas. And that's, that's, that's kind of like a part of our process, but coming in to tell us about the development agreement ordinance that he has rights, that's not input. He's telling us what he got. That's like any other presentation of any other community member coming in to tell us, you know, what they're doing. And we take those on a different kind of nature at the ward one NAB because we're trying to focus on ward one issues that the NAB can influence and direct. And you can't direct an ordinance that's already been accommodated and adopted. And it's really in his interest. You know, why would he want to go out and ask for input on stuff he's not going to do? <laughs> you know, he's an attorney. He's got his rights. He's got his development plan. There's no influencing that decision because the council's adopted an ordinance. So I said, no, we're not going to have him on now. <laughs> he can come on under development projects when he's building stuff. You know, he wanted these legal rights and he has his legal rights to come in when he's going to be asking for development approvals. And so, um, you know, it was political in my view, you know, um, because they're, I think the decision to give these enhanced development rights to Jacobs is not popular in the community. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting question is how do you gauge what is and is not popular in the community? Cause one of the things that I have noticed and I try to follow all the different interested parties uh, I follow a lot around the homeless advocate community, around stuff around CARES, um, and they have a lot of opinions around development, around Jacobs, around the motels. But I also follow a lot of the people that are very pro-development and want to see a lot of growth in Reno. So there's all of these kind of conflicting ideas about what we should do, what we shouldn't do, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, if you want to break it down into like the oversimplified version. So how do you gauge what the community really wants? Because there are people who are much more vocal and much more active and it's impossible to know who actually represents what the city wants. I think elections are really the way that we, as a community, collectively voice what we are for and against. But obviously, we don't vote on every single development or developer or issue or neighborhood situation or whatever. So how do you gauge kind of like what is what the community wants? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a it is a challenge. And we, we talk about this a little bit. My, my campaign team is the echo chamber. You know, what echo chamber are you in? You know, because it can reverberate and then you think that's fact and it is not mm -hmm. fact. And, you know, we're becoming a very diverse, larger community. You know, I'm not out there a whole lot, particularly in these COVID times, but I try and, um, you know, keep my ears open, talking to different people, you know, go to different geography in the community. I have a really, my mental map is very, very strong. I was a long distance runner. I ran in college and I just spent a lot of time out in geography with my head somewhere. You know, I like to hike, but that's not so much the built environment. So I know Ward 1, like in my head, I can just envision all these intersections, streets, neighborhoods, and so on. And, and that's served me very well. Not, 
um, because I can read a neighborhood, people spend most of their times in a neighborhood, then I can kind of get a sense of, you know, what's going on, but you do have to be in different neighborhoods and talking to different people. And you have to be out there, you know, doing business shopping or, you know, involving yourself in community efforts. That's key and listen. So that's, that's very important. I have a good mental map of the city too, even though, like I said, I didn't grow up here. It gives me a little bit of a hindrance, but you know, at any given time, I've seen so much of it. I have, um, um, if there's an area where I don't know how these neighborhoods connect or what street, what I'm like, how do I not know that? <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm always lost over here. How can that be Longley lane? It just <laughs> like, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that's a good way to, you know, just live in the community and, and understand but you really have to understand the diversity of the community too. across one thing in particular is, you know, geographic, ethnic and racial lines, but also age demographics, you know, the experience of moms who are doing the and dads, the elementary school thing right now, which I've done, I did as a parent, you know, that's a whole time in someone's life where your issues are really important to you versus someone who's kicking it, not kicking it, but, you know, enjoying a retirement or rather isolated in a retirement. So you really have to understand that there's a lot of diverse living experiences going on in your community. But at the end of the day, you really have to have confidence in yourself to make these hard decisions. People looking at you, the humbling experience of asking people for their vote, that you're in it for the right reasons, that you're there to lead and you understand the responsibility people are giving to you and you'll take everything into consideration. You won't, um, you know, we all have our own biases. We all have our own leanings, but you really have to be, um, you know, at a multitude of, of considerations. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I was in this early and, and I started to have some supporters that said, Jenny, you know, I don't really understand what's going on there. And, you know, I can't figure that out. There's nothing in the paper, but, you know, um, wherever you land, I, you know, I can accept that. I understand that. And it's just, they know that you've grown and, you, you know, you've shown enough track record of being in it for the right reasons that, you know, even if they disagree on where you went, um, and at the end of the day, you have to live with yourself and you can't please everyone, you know, too. You got to be able to, that's one thing I think that I've done well on this is I don't take it too personally. You know, I don't want to, I want to emphasize, I want to know where people are coming from and appreciate and validate their experience. But when I state an understanding or something, it's not personal and I'm not internalizing it personally either. Yeah. Well, I, I had Councilman Reese on the podcast. And one of the things that he said that really stuck with me is that just because he doesn't agree with someone doesn't mean that he didn't listen to them or that he didn't take their view into account. And I think that's kind of an important thing to recognize that you are not going to please everybody. There will be people that you disagree with about how to do something and not taking that personally and not uh, shaping your whole opinion about someone based on a disagreement about a policy or something is probably a healthier way 
to, you know, relate as citizens and elected officials than, uh, you know, making everything a life or death situation and everything personalized. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to move on too with your colleagues too. one thing after the other, you know, because a colleague, you know, you come together on one thing, but on another thing, you might be apart, but you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have, you have to work together. And I, I guess the last question I have, because I know we're running longer than mm-hmm. I expected that I get, there was so much that I wanted to ask you that uh, I'm, I'm glad it's a longer episode. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you since you're running for mayor and we're talking about kind of disagreement about approaches in the council, you're highly critical of the current city council. So hypothetically, let's say you win and you're the mayor and you are still like six, one Jenny, like, do you worry about being a mayor that doesn't have the city council on your side or that you, that you'll have challenges around bringing people together and getting the things done that you want to do? Like, what is, uh, is that a concern for you? Because obviously the mayor still needs to work with people and all of these things are collaborative efforts. So how do you balance that? Like highly critical of the current city council, but needing to collaborate and work with the city council as mayor. How would that, how do you see that working? Well, you know, you got to remember, we meet twice a month at least, and 95% of our issues are in unanimity. It really is one more of focus and the agenda, you know, and I think that when we sit down at the end of the day and talk from points of values, what we want to deliver uh, individually in our terms for our constituents, the policies we've created, you know, the paths can be lined out and we can get there early on the council you know, all came together and agreed upon doing a master plan, all agreed upon some very hard but important fiscal, you know, guidelines, all agreed upon the downtown plan. So I think that we had a path of working well together, but those were on very baseline decisions of a big And then how do you prioritize what to do for what reasons? And I think if all of a sudden, you know, you don't have, say, a Jacobs who has a well-connected lobbyist getting in someone's ear, you know, their interests don't pop up because the interests of, you know, do we do a Northwest downtown plan? What's the advantage for that? You, You would flesh those out in public and the reasons why in public. And I think we will get there because at the end of the day, I have faith that cities can deliver. I really do believe that cities, government are important places to improve people's lives and, you know, guide a community and you all can do well and get there because you all do more or less the same things, provide infrastructure, have parks and so on. You know, we're moving forward on the pool, but I would have liked to have done the pool sooner and without debt, you know, but the pool's being done with debt and in combination with the police department. I didn't support that. And it was a pivot, I think, off of some of the earlier conversations we had. And that's because a lot happen behind the scenes in discussions and the audiences when I'm mayor will be out front. They will be laid out. They will be multifaceted. And so I think that there's no denying that because even if it is six, one, 
everyone knows where something is coming from and how it's deliberated. And I think that's when a body works well together. When a body has, you know, tight connections to a few lobbyists who have a bunch of clients and the decisions seem to go, whoa, where'd that come from? That's when you get in trouble. And that's when you don't function well as a body. And I think that when you have more open process, open dialogue, more strategic workshops in public, you all do well because everyone's on the same page of where you're going. And I look forward to setting the tone for that as mayor. So you mentioned that you have a Substack. What is the best way you think for people to keep in the loop about what's going on both at the city in general? So there's city council meetings, those type of things, and also with you and your campaign. How do people stay in the loop? You know, um, JennyBreckis.com is the website. It's uh, it's getting built this month, um, but it's still up there. <laughs> it was up there from 2020. Substack.com is a really good one. Um, I'm going to continue that through the campaign year. I love writing them. You know, it's probably not the best campaign strategy. You know, not a lot of people are going to read 1500 words about the lands bill, but, you know, it's another voice and there's a lot of those out there. Uh, city information you know, there's so many different channels. There's the neighborhood advisory boards. Uh, You can just go onto the city website and get the, you know, the topics that are of interest to you and participate that way. And never forget the TUMWAs, the RTCs. Uh, We parse out a lot of responsibility, these boards and commissions. And that's been something that's been a struggle for me, not being able to sit on RTC for 10 years that has so much influence in the built environment and is more or less a broken uh, agency, very unaccountable with only five members. You know, our bus systems collapsed. We've not doing well on Mm -hmm. safety on the roads. Big motivation for me for running for office for mayor is to see that agency reformed. But, um, you know, follow those agencies too. Yeah, well, I think people should be paying more attention, but I know that is a big ask for a lot of people who they have their own lives and their own interests and and telling everyone that they need to pay attention to all of the details that are happening in their city government is, that's a pretty big ask for a lot of people. So I think whatever makes it easy is generally, I think, well-received by the public to get all their information in one place in easy ways, those kind of things. I always find helpful. And again, I just assume that most people I encounter in my daily life are not paying nearly as much attention as, you know, myself or others that are actively interested in what's going on in city government. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing is, and just, you know, to close it out is, um, we all do really well when we have connections in our lives. It can be neighbors. It can be someone at a business. And, you know, if you find someone who seems a little more educated with you than you on these local issues, um, level-headed, you know, have them be your go-to source. I kind of was the go-to source in my neighborhood for a while when, you know, things would happen. And, and, um, and, you know, the, that's how leadership is built actually is, is in these, you know, these people who take an interest and then get a little bit of a following of people who are like, I don't need to know. She just tells me what is going on in the neighborhood. And, and so um, that's mm-hmm. a very powerful role to play. And it's a good pe- person to have in your life. And the great thing about local government is we're polarized politically as a um, country a lot of times. And that takes up a lot of the, you know, news, but on city issues, you know, 
people who can see the world completely different, a lot of aspects can have a very strong agreement that some uh, drainage on a street is not functioning well and is wiping out a curb, you know? Well, perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was awesome to talk to you. And I'm glad we got to have a good long conversation about so many of these issues that really affect the city. Like I said, some people are not paying that much attention, but there are a lot of people who are super, super hungry for information about what's going on, why things are happening the way that they are. So I'm really grateful that you took the time to sit down and give me kind of a lot of background about how things work and and what you'd like to see in the city. I really appreciate it. And thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. I learned a ton. Thanks. Thanks, Connor. Listeners, thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of Rena White. And special thanks to Jenny Brackus for coming on the show. What a great conversation. I learned so much about not just her experience so far on the city council, but a lot of details about how things work in town, the planning that goes into things. I know a lot of us don't always pay attention to the nuts and bolts of city government, so I really appreciated this opportunity to learn a bit. If you enjoyed this episode or any other, I really, really appreciate feedback. If you can leave me a positive review on Apple Podcasts, that helps people find the show. And again, you can reach me anytime via email. My address, again, is Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renowites.com. That's all I got for you this week. See you next time.